Welcome to the Death Panel. Today, we are actually re-releasing an episode, a very popular episode that was first released to patrons, a patron exclusive about the history of Medicare. We're taking the week off for the first time ever so that Artie and I can work... Finish our book. Our butts off yeah. on the manuscript, finishing it off. Um, we've the finally, first draft, at least. Yeah. First draft of the book. Finally got a release date, Ooh. so we'll see that coming in a year see you from now. next year, yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Phil's a very busy man with lots I've of engagements. Secret pro- top secret project in New York City that uh, that can't be, can't be released, right. so... Exactly. So we thought we'd Phil share this episode. Joining the Fantastic Four. I'm just exactly. Kidding. Sorry, please. I'll just cut that out. Me being all professional and already like Joey. Yeah. So we thought we'd release this episode, which patrons loved. If you like this, please consider supporting the show. Become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. Yep. And um, we'll be we back will on Monday. be back on Monday. Yeah. Yep. So become a patron and we'll catch you in the patron feed very soon. All right. I was reminded of something this week which i can't believe that i forgot about and that i am sad did not make it into our conversation about uh particularly the freakonomics relationship to emily oster but let me hit you guys with something from the (laughs) original freakonomics book oh no oh dear no i I don't need this throwback some of of our (laughs) listeners may be familiar with this quote uh because it became rather infamous however for those not aware Um, This is the economic tradition that Emily Oster is a part of. Again, this is from the original Freakonomics book in like 2005. Quote, in the early 1990s, just as the first cohort of children born after Roe v. Wade was hitting its late teen years, the years during which young men enter their criminal prime, (laughs) the rate of crime began to fall. What this cohort was missing were the children who stood the greatest chance to become criminals. Legalized abortion led to less unwantedness. Unwantedness leads to high crime. Legalized abortion, therefore, led to less crime. Wow. Yes. I love, oh, I love, I love the crime, the crime economics. Yeah. They started, you know, TGI Fridays started releasing their potato skins (laughs) in bag form. In 1997, and as we all know, crime shot up immediately Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for your support, as always. Share the show with your friends and keep posting about your favorite episodes. It's a holiday weekend. Happy 4th of July, I guess. To celebrate America today, the panel is going to consider the history of one of the most popular social welfare programs of the 20th century. We are talking, of course, about the shit show that is Medicare. Yeah, it's a barbecue in which we will roast (laughs) different elements of Medicare. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think it's really important to look into the actual history of this and kind of what some of the I mean, what some of the compromises in it are that were baked in from the get go. Right. Right. Um, And kind of why they've had these almost like tragic comic 
cascading effects in the time period after and like including into today. I kind of think of this topic as Medicare first as farce and then as tragedy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I always sort of I, I think about it as like in the classic Greek tragedy setup, you know, you've got your your hubris, you've got your like the second part, you're like ruin, follow your delusion, <laughs> and you have your like nemesis right at the end, right? And I always feel like the the way that I first like learned the history it was in this very hubristic like way that um, uh, we had these like legislative twelve dimensional chess players and just the, you know the legislative genius uh, of doing this and you know this, this is like very very crafty like political success but I think the like when you back up and look at the whole frame of like what was happening. You see everything that was left on the table. You see what was included. Uh, in ways that like divided the co- future coalitions for reform. So t- yeah. taking mm-hmm. a, a sort of Greek tragedy perspective, uh, <laughs> I think I think might actually be useful here. Yeah. And, and I think one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this today in particular is because after what felt like, I think, building momentum for several years behind Medicare for all and other pushes for like federal universal single payer, I think during the past few months, it's felt um, there's been sort of this uh, deflation or like it feels a little defeatist to be fighting for this kind of like expansive uh, reform under the Biden um, administration, especially considering the fact that, you know, Biden's made his career on opposing stuff like this. Right. But, you know, I think despite Biden's like very clear and vehement career long opposition to any type of like national health insurance, It is really important in our contemporary context to understand that this is not just a fight happening in a vacuum, right? It's not just about the context right now under Biden. It's, it's, there's a much more like deep and richer history that if you start to dig into not just like, the idea of Medicare passing writ large one day and, you know, almost the sort of d- divine creation myth of one day <laughs> there is Medicare and Medicaid and and that's the sort of modern era of healthcare and And that hides the sort of truer story that shows, you know, why it passed and what those issues were of who was left out and how who was left out and who was at the table basically becomes like what sets a lot of the stage for the situation that we're dealing with now. I think that's a really good uh, context to to put it in in terms of right now, especially because um, looking at the and, you know, this is I think uh, in some ways this will follow from but not require having listened to at all um, a previous episode that we did last fall, which is called a death panel history of socialized medicine, um, where we talked about some of the history immediately preceding this. Um, and the, the sort of uh, rallying, like the the emergence of like physician groups uh, organized through the AMA as this like uh, very powerful collective force that like mobilized their members to basically do a completely organized like disinformation campaign saying that any sort of national health insurance reform in the United States was... Uh, you know, part of the red menace was socialized medicine was, uh, you know, all the, all this bullshit stuff that like the the same talking points really that perpetuate, um, in, into today, basically the way that we, um, are going to approach this history, probably in a, a way that I think it's really relevant to approach this history is looking through, um, the, the actions and reactions essentially of a lot of the really vested 
interest groups in this. And that's, you know, when I say like interest groups, I don't mean just, you know, industry groups and things like that, which I think we're, we're used to thinking of things as, but, um, also, also the mobilization of people, both, uh, within, uh, things like organized labor, but also outside of it, like the mobilization just of people, um, and actually, and be the reason I'm saying like, you know, I, I think it's really important the way that you, you set this up is because in some part, moments like right now are exactly the perfect time to continue to build and, uh, and do a big push for something like socialized medicine. Because again and again, you see, uh, if you're, if you even glance at these histories, you see these moments of severe demobilization that are largely, I think, done by, you know, uh, either, either such and such fails to pass, uh, and, and becomes like seen as, uh, politically unrealizable in that, in that moment in time, or actually as in the case of Medicare, which I think we'll argue, which maybe is a good transition to get us into starting to really talk about the history as in the case of Medicare, something passes actually, mm-hmm. and it totally changes the course of the way, uh, sort of like political mobilization is done towards, something like national health insurance. And so, you know, just as, uh, just as we could say, um, I think, you know, we're aware, for example, like over the course of, uh, the last uh, couple of years, obviously we've been really actively gunning for, uh, Medicare for all and things like that. And now even some of, uh, the people who over the last couple of years were the most vocal were and have been the most vocal proponents of it within the, the quote unquote, like halls of power or whatever, you know, within Congress or, or wherever, um, People like Bernie Sanders, for example, are focusing on stuff like let's lower the Medicare eligibility age to uh, to something like 55. Let's uh, include vision and dental in Medicare. And um, one thing that is important to understand historically is it's not it's you know, it's not really about uh, what those people think is possible to achieve and what their goals ultimately are. Um, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders, for example, retreating to like, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, realistically, maybe in the political time frame that we're working with in the next few years, we can we can get these sort of uh, expansions to Medicare. When you see retreats like that, I think, um, you know, it reminds me of things like things that I'm not even sure that we'll get to uh, later exactly. But people like Ted Kennedy, for example, after having spent a long portion of his career advocating for a national health insurance program you know, eventually sort of like retreats into, okay, reforms, reforms, right? And so a big part of the the sort of like ability to create uh, moments where major systemic changes is possible is like make is making sure that there is a sustained uh, public pressure. Right. 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 So, and, and as I think we're going to see, like the the story of of Medicare itself reveals that the particular people that are framed as the beneficiaries, uh, matter a lot. And I think the fascinating thing, I mean, we can start with this to like get into the history is to think about like, where does the pressure for these sorts of systems tend to come from in the uh, political economy? And cross-nationally, it always begins with organized labor. Um, the labor movement uh, kind of, in, you know, in a variety of countries has been like key to like pushing for systems of national health insurance. Mm-hmm. But I think the the fascinating thing where the history of, of Medicare itself starts is that national health insurance was like not necessarily at all on organized labor's uh, agenda. In fact, a 
quite explicitly by the time that Medicare is being debated in the 1960s, it's not. And I think it's worth going into like why that is. Right. Because during the 1940s, you know, you have American trade unions really focusing on expanding collective bargaining rights, on trying to secure, you know, what's called sort of individual fringe benefits for, for specific working groups instead of working on like campaigns for national health insurance. And so what you actually do have is sort of in the 40s and 50s, the focus of labor's attention allows these group employer plan products to develop and become incredibly lucrative things for insurance companies to get into because, again, unions are sort of bargaining for these collective health benefits um, instead of a broader government paid for uh, national health insurance. And, you know, really a lot of what starts to become a problem is that as people retire, as they become disabled, unions start to run into funding issues when it comes to paying for the pensions and care or sometimes health care for retired and disabled workers was not included at all. So unions start to really come under pressure when they have large portions of their membership population start to retire. Of course, this is also happening amid like what's happening politically where unions power is starting to be restricted. So like as the 50s progress, um, I think unions get very increasingly like worried about having to financially provide for all of their pensioners and start to shift their pressure towards, okay, we need to, you know, not just go after individual employers to cover health benefits. We need to also, you know, apply pressure politically in order to take some of the pressure off of covering all of the retirees, pensions and health care. Well, and also I think around this period or sort of post-World War II, you had seen uh, really, really the rise of what of sort of like the precursor to what are our contemporary health insurance companies and largely uh, in part actually tied to the actions of uh, labor at the time during the war. Basically, there was a wage freeze. And so securing things like health benefits through employers guaranteeing health insurance to union members became this thing where basically through and in part through act of Congress too, where like you have a you have a basically like a, a tax act uh, passed in I think 42 where they say that like employer contributions essentially to employee health insurance are not taxed as wages. And so like this entire industry develops into its own formal lobby really um after that point and uh and you start to see basically so you've got these things like uh you know organized labor has one sort of these this like um you you see a lot of this in the literature referred to as like quite literally as like a private welfare state right they had one um you know they had they had won these protections in the form of private health insurance through employers and in some sense the sort of originating uh, form of the the Medicare fight comes from, as B kind of alluded to, well, we have now we have the problem of like, we have these retirees who are uncared for. We have workers who either are disabled simply because they were disabled or became uh, disabled because a lot of industrial labor is very disabling, right? And, you know, the question arises, like, how do we basically win specifically protections or, or benefits or, or what, how, what have you? for that group of people for sort of people especially under this sort of deservingness framework of like 
They've worked uh, hard their whole lives. Exactly. You yes. know, they are they're former workers, right? Right, exactly. And, and there's also, I mean, I think it's worth just pointing out one other thing, which is that the way that health benefits get included as something that you can collectively bargain for is in 1947, actually in the Taft-Hartley Act, which is mm. by, mm-hmm. you know, for those of you playing at home, the same <laughs> bill that allows states to pass right-to-work laws. Um, right. So, yeah. and, and the political context for that is this huge uh, conservative backlash against unions after this wave of sit-down strikes in the middle 40s. And, you know, I, and, and really this like, you know, increasing intensity of like Red Scare um, and anti-union uh, kind of organizing by employers. And so, you you know, this is like you, you can see this as one sort of additional thing that unions are trying to like uh, secure these collective bargaining benefits so that they can essentially maintain their uh, maintain their ranks as well. Um, so, you know, that the sort of anti-communist uh, politics is it's it's always it's never like the top line thing that you see in the history, but it's all you all have to think like that's the context in which organized labor mm-hmm. is always operating. Oh yeah, especially right. in the forties and fifties. So um yeah, that's that's really important that they're like trying to secure these bread and butter benefits for their uh, constituents because this is like they're they're under assault. Right. Right. And and it's really actually during this twenty year period between the end of World War II and the passage of Medicare in nineteen sixty five where private insurance's power actually is solidified. Like in, in a lot of ways when uh, the American labor movement mobilizes its extensive networks to start trying to advocate for stuff like Medicare and Social Security, disability insurance, you know, covering the people that they can't provide for with their pension funds anymore. Um, they're really fighting a problem of their own making in many ways because the power of private insurance companies arises out of the um wins of the labor movement, right? That's very clear. It's an unfortunate consequence of having one robust, large health insurance programs to the point that, you know, employer-sponsored health insurance becomes sort of a, a, an understood truth, right? right? As a policy reality and as a as a reality under like American capitalism, this is like how healthcare became known as how it was paid for, right? right? So when, when unions are turning to uh, start to organize in order to try and pass national health insurance programs, the people that they're actually fighting um, were able to gain power and influence through the work of the unions. Well, and it's interesting because it starts not necessarily as uh, unions fighting for a national health insurance program. If it starts more as this, you know, unions fighting for a uh, not even a disability health insurance program, but a disability insurance program, something like, you know, guaranteed uh, you know, get, like basically they had this problem. It's, uh, it's stated they had this problem that, you know, um, disabled workers essentially qualified for no, um, public pension until they reached social security age 65 cause social security had been previously passed. Um, and then actually b- what's interesting is as soon as the unions start to identify this, uh, sort of population as, as a group, like a constituency that they, uh, want to mobilize and basically fight for a public benefit for, you see very explicitly private insurance companies identify that as an existential potential threat that once they win, you know, that once, for instance, just this, uh, like, you know, uh, extension of, for instance, social security to the disabled is one that it's only a matter of time before, uh, private insurance companies are out of business. And, you know, the administration of health is done by the government. I want to read from this, um, 
book by Jill Quadagno called One Nation Uninsured, which is an extension of it's kind of like an expansion of the um, the the in the previous episode where we've uh, the, the episode that I mentioned um, a death panel history of socialized medicine, we drew pretty heavily from this Jill Quadagno article called why the United States has no national health insurance. Um, and this is kind of uh, eventually she, this is like early two thousands. She, she turned it into a full book um, and expanded to some of the stories here. So uh, I'm going to be reading from that um, again. It's called one nation uninsured. Um, so she's, she establishes basically like, so the, the AFL and the CIA, the, the AFL CIO was formed basically. I mean, this was a huge contextually, this is a huge monumental change and uh, I'm going to read I'm going to read uh, this from Quidagna's book on uh, how they sort of approached things immediately after their joining. Quote, the AFL-CIO decided to tackle the disability issue first. Disability benefits were a union concern because disabled workers had no government benefits until they became eligible for Social Security at age 65. That placed the burden of their support on the unions. Some unions negotiated benefits for disabled members in their collective bargaining agreements, but in return had to make concessions on wage increases for working members. Thus, the incentive to shift this cost to the government was intense. In 1956, the AFL-CIO made the fight for disability insurance, quote, a kind of wedding ceremony. Um, the AMA goes on to, again, you know, directly, uh, directly like fight this. Um, and they say, even though disability benefits involved no medical care, the AMA, the American Medical Association, um, the lobbying group for, for physicians, basically, the AMA feared any measure that would allow the government to extend its reach. When the Advisory Council on Social Security had recommended disability benefits in its 1947 report, the AMA had fought it, quote, tooth and nail. According to Ig Falk, they thought, quote, oh, this is just a camel getting his nose under the tent, and therefore they <laughs> opposed it, they being doctors as a lobbying group. Because the next thing, you'd have a broader disability program, and the next thing, you'll be giving medical care to the disabled. Um, so, so funny. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's pretty characteristic, right, of the AMA's approach to every, everything. That, like, I, yeah. <laughs> I think I've said this before, but I... Uh, no, we know of a bill that the AMA opposed, uh, which was in fact a mosquito abatement uh, bill in the early 1950s that they're like, if this mosquito abatement bill passes, we're going to have, it's going to be Stalinism in the United States. Oh my so God. Yeah, this is pretty characteristic of their, their whole shtick. Yeah. Um, That's amazing. But I think, I think what's interesting, right, is that you have the AMA and they're pretty consistently like holding this line. And I think that's been the story that I've always heard about, yeah. uh, you know, why we have no national health insurance in the United States, et cetera. But the more that you read this story, the more that you see that the AMA, while they were powerful, they weren't really to me, the pivotal player, uh, in this story. Um, you, you know, you, of course you have, uh, Truman, other presidents like going up against the AMA, going toe to toe with them. I mean, that to me suggests that they're not really as powerful as their own sort of self styled histories and hagiographies like portray themselves as right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you know, the, 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 the caduceus, uh, and everything and like the, the white coat. Yeah, it matters. But at the same time, um, you know, you got presidents sort of going up against them. But but in reality, it seems that the sort of relationship between labor unions and like what labor unions are willing to push for and what uh, presidential administrations are willing to like 
go up uh, for seems like pretty important. Like, Artie, you found this wonderful quote uh, about this discussion between one of um, Truman's uh, oh, yeah. people on healthcare. <laughs> Uh, can you can you relate that story about Oscar yeah. Ewing? Oh, uh, this yeah. is incredible. So this this is a this is a bit earlier, but this is actually this is kind of this makes sense. This will actually make the sort of pretext of the conversation that we're talking mm-hmm. about, and in in a way, um, part of the reason I think that organized labor sort of limits its political imagination. Uh, as far as I understand the history, it's this complicated thing of sort of the on one hand there was now an invested interest in uh, it, within the American labor movement of preserving the victories that they had gotten of, of, you know, winning certain small, really, uh, private, private, uh, health insurance benefits from employers. And then also I think there was an understanding, uh, that sort of the political imagination or the, 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 the realm of political possibility was a bit narrower than the capacity for doing something like national health insurance. Um, and I think this story, uh, really well illustrates sort of the, the prehistory of this. So, there, there had been within, for instance, like the the original social security fight, and over the course of like uh, Truman's time, there had been an idea of including something like a national health insurance program that was you know, essentially defeated. That was very, I mean, that's in part the story that we tell in um, a death panel history of socialized medicine. So, um, one of uh, Truman's point people, Oscar Ewing, he uh, there, there's this there's this great story that is told um, in in some of his letters, some of his correspondence um, from the late 40s. Ewing writes that uh, they had been that the Truman administration had been quote casting around for something that we might save out of the defeat of national health insurance. It is then revealed that. Um, One night when Ewing was having cocktails at the home of his longtime friend, William Randolph Hearst, the wealthy and influential newspaper publisher, Hearst suggested narrowing the focus of national health insurance to the elderly. Um, (laughs) The famous postscript to Citizen Kane that was never (laughs) deleted scene from Citizen Kane. Charles Foster Kane's like, what if it's just the elderly? <laughs> what if you had? What if you simply expanded Kerr Mills and uh, I'm turn my, my my citizen and my my uh, Orson Welles is just merging with Bane, and that's not that's yeah, not working. No, but, I appreciate that. But it is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I think this is really telling about the sort of American political landscape of what was again what was like both thought of as conceivable, but also again the you know you have someone who's appointment in the Truman administration having you know Truman's administration having previously fought for national health insurance, and here they are, uh, you know, having a friendly drink with uh, none o- none other than uh, William Randolph Hearst, Mister Citizen Kane himself, right? Um, I think you know it's, it's like care expert. <laughs> well, it's, it's you know it's obviously you know you know obviously I'm not this is not like any sort of originating sin of American power or whatever, right? This is we know that this is kind of like the uh, this is in in some sense the reason why we joke frequently about like interests coming to the table or being you know everyone has to get a seat at the table or whatever, right? Right? Because mm-hmm. it's you know obviously Hearst is the kind of person who would have a vested interest in saying, well, you know, obviously like we don't want organized labor to, uh, get quote unquote private welfare state concessions for the elderly out of us. So, I mean, it was, I'm, I'm digressing quite, quite a bit, but there is a persistent 
through line in a lot of this that occasionally actually particularly when the expenses for healthcare become great mm-hmm. there are frequent statements by you know arch capitalists like people like Hearst's um specifically singling out well what if we just hived this group off right which is interesting right. because then that does become basically the idea of right. a lot of major reforms that are to follow like Medicare. And I think an important thing to just like be very explicit about is that, you know, one of the issues that Hearst is actually proposing a solution for, which is sort of at this point less overtly stated than it was, for example, like in 1918, when like Henry Mock was saying we need to expand VA insurance to all of America so that we don't end up with a bunch of dependent, vagrant, poor people everywhere (laughs) because like turns out like health is also socially determined. Like he was also like a huge eugenicist, but like uh, uh, digression aside, like one of the things that even back in 1918 is an issue that it, that the public is grappling with is who deserves the health care, who deserves to be taken care of, who is deserving of assistance, aid, welfare, charity, care, etc. And so one of the issues that I think is sort of constantly being tr- like walked around and try it's a problem that's being solved over and over is is, you know, what do we do with sort of trying to justify um, large, generous relief towards not just the deserving populations, but the quote unquote undeserving populations, right. right? And so there's this idea that that people keep going to, which actually like should not sound unfamiliar to anyone who paid at all any little tiny bit of attention during the 2020 American presidential primary. But one solution that's floated over and over is, well, what if we start really small? And then we have sort of a, you know, that will pave the way for progressive reforms that will slowly start to expand political will to cover the undesirables, the undeserving, et cetera, et cetera. The idea of sort of going for the the most politically easy at first, right, is um, kind of the strategy that's taken over and over again to solve this question of, of what about, you know, the people who the quote unquote public thinks doesn't deserve the help, which I don't think is necessarily reflective of actual people's opinions, frankly. Right. right. No, and I, I I think that that's that's a good myth to just like bust. I think the other myth to bust is that like the the, the shadowy medical and, you know, health insurance industrial complex that's like always the key thing in these stories. Like it's as much a feature of the way that the the people who could have provided the biggest amount of energy behind this movement, the organized labor and what they were motivated to do, what their preferences were by the 1950s that made Medicare rather than a national health insurance plan, the main thing that Democrats were on about. And the and you can see that very, very explicitly in the sense that by 1960, Kennedy, um, like his sort of intervention, the Medicare had already been proposed and in, in more or less it's, you know, sort of current, so, something like it, the the four and bill had already been proposed in Congress. But Kennedy's sort of intervention is to say, okay, organized labor is sort of mainly interested in health insurance for retirees, 
But we also have this like constituency of senior citizens that could be mobilized for this thing. So it's essentially it's like divide and benefit. It's like here we have this narrow constituency that we know could potentially be mobilized to care about this thing. We want to incorporate them into the party coalition. And let's just like go after this. Right. Because right. it seems it, it's it's not like. I'm trying to put it. I think often when people talk about like uh, political feasibility, it's framed as like, <laughs> oh, that would be too extreme and that would alienate people. And so we don't want to do that. That's not really the politics of political feasibility in in, in this era that, that we're looking at is like, oh, well, I know that there's that group out there and that they can move asses out of seats and like get people to write letters. And I know there's this group out there and they'll do that. And like. They seem to only care about this one thing and they're not really going to like go for anything else. So it's like it's more about kind of like who's around and what do they seem to be mobilized and interested in rather than like, oh, if we propose that. I think that the conventional wisdom is like, oh, if we propose that, like we'll really be called like socialism too extreme. That's not really how this worked, I think. Right. It's I'm glad you brought up the 1957 bill, uh, Phil, because it's actually that's sort of the beginning of what also begins to develop as another pattern, which is, Mm. you know, when insurance companies start to see movement and pressure being applied on lawmakers and they start to see the sort of possibility of change, they will not only start to lobby uh, legislators to try and get involved in the process to make it more favorable to them and to sort of make sure that the private insurance industry could survive any reforms and changes, but they also start um, releasing their own products, mimicking those demands to try and demonstrate that actually, you know, the private insurance in- the private industry market is can like, do it. We can yeah, do we're it. totally capable. <laughs> just like us. subsidize us more. And and actually, like what you see over and over and over again, like from 1957 forward is private insurance companies actually relying on how successful this strategy was um, in 1957, where basically like within the first year of the Foran bill and pressure starting to build in Congress on, you know, a senior citizen national health program. Um, in 1957, Continental Casualty creates a program called Golden 65, <laughs> which Lovely. is the Eiffel first- 65. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the um, first hospital insurance program for the aged. And then the next year in 1958, Prudential and AARP come out with their plan and Mutual of Omaha develops what they call the senior security program, trying to even sort of uh, mimic the language used by the federal government for the Social Security Administration program, which had only been passed a couple of years prior. Which, as you'll see, will be a continuing theme that will be familiar to today actually <laughs> right. um but yeah and i think so yeah following that um you you do have sort of public and union groups on on the one hand who are advocating for medicare again increasingly increasingly intentionally defined as medicare too uh one thing that the AFL-CIO does for example is it creates um a group called the National Council of Senior Citizens who very deliberately start to use the language of Medicare, uh, do a lot of like public uh, public education stuff, basically, to to socially reproduce the idea of what Medicare is and would be and should cover, et cetera. Um, and you have like, you know, it, it's interesting because as, as we mentioned from the top, Medicare is talked about as this sort of, you know, I don't know, what are, what are the what are, what's the language that like um your pod save Americas or whatever would use to describe it. Right. Like 
like landmark universal program or whatever mm-hmm. um you know like like I, the, i've heard most... people call it like a promise to america right yeah often. Like, um and we we do know that it, i mean it's true to say it's like one of the most popular programs of uh popular social welfare programs of the 20th century but still it's the i i think what is sort of lost in the just general you know celebration of of medicare sort of making it to the finish line is what the process what that actual sort of constitutive process of like wrangling medicare into its final form was and i think that this is like a really important part of the story in part because i feel like this is one of the first times that you see the health industries, physicians, hospitals, um, these insurance com- these insurance companies that are really getting on their feet uh, at this period, um, and you know a number of other groups realizing, I think, for the first time, not only are not only is it beneficial to do moves like B was talking about, where you kind of like muddle the message a little bit by making it so that there's like another, you know, we have a we have a product for that or whatever, and it kind of echoes the language. Um, they realize also that if a reform is going to happen, the best position to be is, you know, at the table. So for example, um, here's something from Quidagna's book, quote, as it became apparent that some measure would be enacted, the key interest groups began jockeying to ensure that they had a voice in the final legislation. The negotiations over Medicare were conducted by Robert Ball, a politically skilled tactician who had come up through the ranks in the social security administration and was widely respected. As early as 1961, Ball had had secret telephone conversations with Harry Becker, a Blue Cross official, to try to recruit him as an ally. Ball and AFL-CIO officials also met with American Hospital Association representatives who, quote, would never come in here as the American Hospital Association, but they would come in as individuals who were very knowledgeable in the field and start off by saying, of course we're against this legislation, but if it's going to pass... It ought to do this. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And this and this in a way makes sense because and there's there's two things, right, that they're doing. One is, you know, if the legislation is going to be like an, if they see it as an inevitability, which is really cool that they in a way like just to like scope this out, like it is kind of cool that they were like so uh, just like sort of defeated. They're like, well, yeah, I guess it's going to pass, uh, you know, that, that and, and really that the fact that they're like socialism messages did not work is really fun because yeah. you had this huge like, social reproductive like apparatus. Really, it shows you like what these uh, federated organizations could do when they're mobilized. Like, yeah, you you know, somebody wanted to like say shit about uh, Medicare. You would have somebody like organize a rally like in their district on it. Like the, the, the amount of like literature pamphlets that were going out and then explicitly calling out all of these industry groups as as charlatans was was prodigious. So it's cool that they thought it was inevitable, but they were really just trying to, you know, preserve as much autonomy as they possibly could. But the other thing that they were trying to do, and I think that you see this really clearly in the way that Medicare was ultimately structured, which we'll talk about, is they were trying to preserve um, a few kind of future politics, right? They did not want, the main thing that they did not want to happen as a result of Medicare was the thing that um, I think liberal commentators often promise that modest reforms will deliver, which is like, oh, this modest reform, it like somehow galvanizes this big constituency (laughs) in, in, in behalf of something 
stronger. Well, they knew that that was maybe sort of kind of possible. And they wanted to make sure that as much class conflict uh, or like within class conflict, like uh, conflict within a single class uh, could be preserved in the structure of the legislation. That's exactly what they did. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I mean, by, you know, by the early 1960s, when you have um, the AFL-CIO forming this uh, National Council of Senior Citizens, which, you know, ends up having the capacity to organize like tens and thousands of people to bombard their representatives to create some pretty clear pressure, you know, which is independent of that pressure. Right. At the same time, you have commercial private insurers really struggling to cover um, the senior population that they do have after, you know, because they've released these products like in 1957, 1958, by 1961, it's become very clear that their, you know, concept of trying to use risk pools and community pricing where everybody gets the same price is not working out well for private insurers. So there's a reason that they're quote unquote giving in or appearing to give in. Right. right? And and so you sort of have um, the, you know, as Phil mentions, they sort of become resigned to the idea that there is a need for a government program that ultimately, you know, there is a clear need for the government to pay for care for the most expensive people because it's very difficult to make money off of them, which is why, you know, they had previously declined to cover those people. And what you have in 1961, actually, is the president of the Health Insurance Association of America begins doing the sort of stump within the professional community pitching how everybody can offer supplemental plans and policies once Medicare is passed to, quote, fill the gaps that would invariably be part of any government program. So, you know, already by 1961, you've got and the Care Mills Act has just passed, which is like very small and narrow. And we'll get into that when we talk about Medicaid later. But, you know, already in 1961, you see private insurance companies going, Okay, I need to find a way to preserve my role in this scenario and through asserting that their role needs to be preserved over and over again by 1965 when Medicare passes, you know, it's uh, taken as an assumption of fact that we need to preserve the role of private insurance and not even debated in that whole like you know, in the whole uh, process of negotiating Medicare. Well, and the method of compromise is the particularly interesting, too, because this is and um, I just want to say, as I'm going to explain a little bit of this uh, and both of you jump, you know, please jump, jump in if I'm if I'm missing anything. But the process that I'm about to explain, uh, which which is the sort of, you know, the the, the formation of what ultimately becomes uh, Medicare, the the sort of public efforts around it, I think, will sound unfortunately probably strikingly familiar to anyone who remembers let's say uh the last presidential uh (laughs) cycle where you had good programs like a national health insurance program single payer uh federal universal single payer medicare medicare for all seeing sort of uh competition as it were in a social reproductive sense through the introduction of things like medicare for america or medicare for all who want it or (laughs) um Kamala Harris calling her program Medicare uh, for all being actually uh, privatized Medicare Mm -hmm. for all. It is it is funny how that strategy bounces from 
the private industry, like better care and all these different things. Then it comes right. right back to the political sphere. They're like, oh yeah, we'll just do what they did. We'll we'll do that too. Yeah. Well, right. but no. Well, but I well, mean, because that, it's that effective being said, for buying time for when lawmakers don't want to act. So why wouldn't the lawmakers start doing it themselves to buy their own time instead of just relying on outside, you know, lobbyists to write model bills to buy them time? They can do it too. Okay, but also let's be real. Medicare for America was uh, was like an insurance industry thing. True. Like, well, so like, still, right, 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 right. Much of these yeah. actually, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's just the same shit over and over again. I, I, I know. That, I know that we know that. I just want to make sure that we're not being like overly reductive. I guess because it is like you know, it's not. Um, <laughs> it's a two way street. <laughs> let's call it. Let's call it that. Um, so. Anyway, so within Medicare, so the reason that we joke about this, um, and I, I apologize because I guess we're putting the cart before the horse a little bit because we know what we're joking about and the listener doesn't necessarily, but um, the reason we're joking about this is because right before the passage of Medicare, essentially, you have um, you have a couple of industry groups who do this like Hail Mary essentially. Um, you have the AMA who we've talked about a lot for the physicians group. Um, they, um, you know, sort of, sort of realizing that, uh, they're probably going to lose this fight. They propose instead of passing Medicare, uh, whatever Medicare ends up being, uh, that Congress pass something that they call elder care, which is more or less a expansion of, um, this program that it only really only in the previous couple of years been passed called Kerr Mills, which again, uh, we may have a chance to get into. Um, around the same time, lobbyists from Aetna, the insurance company that we all know and love, the same Aetna as uh, today, more, I mean, more or less, you know, obviously companies change, propose something called, literally called Better Care, um, <laughs> which is a plan for uh, federal subsidy to buy private health insurance, which sounds Sound familiar. familiar. Yeah. <laughs> um, Don Draper is just drunk in his office. Like, well, what if we called it better, better care? care? Yeah, oh. exactly. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to just read briefly from Aquidagna's book and then you guys can jump in with, with anything that you kind of want to add to this history. But uh, here's a Quidagna's account of it. Quote, in an effort to prevent deadlock, Mills, who's the chairman of the House Ways and Means Commission at the time, Mills decided to combine the three approaches. The AFL-CIO hospital insurance plan, which they had lobbied for under Medicare, the AMA's elder care, and Aetna's better care, into one bill, his quote-unquote three-layer cake. <laughs> According yeah. to Robert can, Ball, everyone in the room was, quote, flabbergasted. Can, can we just talk, let's let's do a brief detour on who Wilbur Mills was, okay? Sure, yeah. yeah. Well, like, do this it. is this is rich fare. So Wilbur Mills, uh, member of Congress from Arkansas, uh, Southern, uh, Southern Democrat, and sort of like, uh, I want you to imagine, like, what would a deficit hawk look like in but like at the time where deficit hawks could like smoke pipes um and like in congress like that was that was wilbur mills the taxpayer's friend um and the other thing to note about mills two, two important things to note one is that he he ran for president in 1972 but uh this presidential run uh ended when he was uh caught with in a um uh vehicular incident which he was driving around with a um, stripper from Argentina named uh, mm -hmm. Annabelle Battistella. And I, I, they were clearly in the front seat together. So there was some sort of <laughs> one can only imagine what was happening. But um, the other thing to note about Mills <laughs> is that he um, drank a lot. 
like he apparently says that he cannot remember. He said later that he could not remember the entirety of the year 1974. Um, <laughs> so I'm imagining oh that, that Mills in the weeks leading up, like different bills are sort of like being slipped under the door. Mills is just Let's drinking, just maybe all. playing, <laughs> maybe playing golf. Like maybe like the golf balls are like just piling up over these bills. And then like, they're like, uh, okay, there's going to be hearing today, uh, uh, chairman Mills. And then he just like pulls the fruit. like, do them all. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's, I can imagine. It's like, that's, and you know what he did. And I mean, that's how we got Medicare. It's yeah. kind of amazing that the person like responsible for Medicare and responsible for care mills, which became like the foundation for means testing and Medicaid was like so drunk and yet thought it was like a reasonable thing to make sure that people weren't like suffering from vices if they were wanted to qualify for government support. Yeah. Isn't that always the way? Though, yeah. Right. You know, right. I mean, I think the history of the 20th century really is the, uh, you know, obviously more than the 20th century but you know really is the you know moral turpitude for for the and not for me and also the right. sort of uh i don't know i just imagine all of these guys as kind of privately within their offices being like you know robert malthus's ideas were really were really frowned <laughs> upon in the time but what if what if Malthus was right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, anyway, it's a conversation for another time. Yeah. So so basically, the layer cake was this. Um, you very know, boozy layer cake. <laughs> it's a very boozy layer cake, and it yeah. gets very confusing because actually what's important to note is that all three bills proposed completely different things. Yeah. Completely different things. And so Mills' solution was... What if we did all of these simultaneously? Yeah. Again, two of which are directly from these different industry lobbies. Right. So he called it a three-layer cake. The first, the first layer of the cake is Medicare Part A. That's what we know as Medicare Part A. And that would pay for hospital care, skilled nursing for a limited period of time, and for some very limited home health care for people recovering from an illness, mm -hmm. not people needing it long term. So this was the one that um, was based on the AFL-CIO plan. This was like traditional Medicare. This is what was being sold to people as Medicare and the AFL-CIO had and the National Council on Senior Citizens or Council of Senior Senior Citizens, you know, they had put in all of this grassroots direct legwork to not only sell the policy to politicians, but also communicate to the general public sort of what Medicare was going to be. Um, and they were really concerned that if Medicare was going to cover um, anything more than hospital services, if it was also going to cover physician services, that there would be like gross inflation and that the prices would get totally out of control. And so, you know, basically you have um, the people who had been trying to get Medicare on the table in the first place being like, whoa, whoa, hold up, please don't do this. And Mills completely ignores them and combines like their plan with exactly what they are worried about it being combined with. And that brings us to layer two. <laughs> um, 
which was an optional program to pay for physician services. And this comes out of the AMA's elder care plan, which, as you know, we mentioned, was this idea of sort of pass through subsidies to pay people or essentially subsidize people being able to buy into um, care. And then you have the third layer, which was a sort of slightly expanded form of the 1960 reform, which was like this very limited, heavily means tested um, state to state. means tested. Yeah. Right. Outrageously means tested state to state program called Care Mills, which Mills was a co-sponsor of originally also. People compared qualifying for Kerr Mills benefits as being subjected to the inquisition right it's it's uh like i think you can't right exactly (laughs) and and so you know what you have is basically and that and that plan was the uh you know better care plan so what you basically have is all of these three proposals coming together to form medicare part a medicare part b and medicaid which are all then sort of passed as one package on july 30th of 1965 and which point, they have 11 months basically to implement the entire thing because it is all required to be in force. Um, I think it's by July 1, 1966. Right. So there's 11 months to go basically from the day it passes to the yeah. day it's supposed to be up and running. Which is actually like fascinating. It's like, uh, you know, they had a year to do it. Benefits like started going out, um, you know, after about a year. I just always have to think about this in comparison to the Affordable Care Act, which took like four to five years to ramp up to do like, really, like who who would look at that and be like, you know, what's great? A program that no one knows anything about how they might benefit from it for at least like two Two election cycles. That's or, brilliant. Yeah. How just about, like how, just the decay of any strategic mind that exists. Just <laughs> it's just wow. Insane. Yeah. Um, also, like, how about the like Kamala Harris plan to phase in uh, over again, ten not years? Actually, over Medicare for years. all over ten years. You know what's yeah. great? Like two two presidential elections and <laughs> like many more yeah. like, congressional elections. That's that's super brilliant. Excellent I, idea. Wonderful. I, I, I think it's really um, I think this is though where it's important to get it like obviously the like the implementation thing is one thing but I think it's then like really important to get into not only the I think first maybe the sort of immediate consequences of um, the passage of Medicare and then the, some of the some of the longer term ones um, like in a way this is where we get to sort of like the the tragedy section right uh, I guess because and there are and there are a lot of different things that we could hit here so um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna try and hit like just a couple of them you mentioned the implementation actually one of the things that immediately happens uh because of this one of the reasons that they have to push for that july 1st to 1966 uh you know uh, being up and running implemented date is because one of the first things that happens after the passage of medicare is a bunch of private insurance companies immediately drop people who are on who are over 65 um just you know important thing classic. to be stated yeah classic they're just like you know these people aren't our problem anymore and this doesn't you know and they do this they did this irrespective of you know whether these people were you know in the process of enrolling the, the, or or enrolled in uh in medicare to start receiving benefits they did this regardless of whether a uh, hospital near them had already been cleared um 
as being able to receive Medicare payments because a big thing that they had to do in that year turnaround time was work to fucking desegregate Southern hospitals. Right. I mean, a whole Um, other conversation for a whole other episode is like the spatial inequity of the implementation of of Medicare, which is, I think, a sort of foundational uh, fracture in how we ended up with the system right. that we have. Exactly. But then also some of some of this we glossed over, but the, the things that have been mentioned by um, both B and Phil so far about the mobilization of senior citizens through the National Council of uh, Senior Citizens, um, you know, t- which is tied to the AFL-CIO, but became, but is, you know, this, this, uh, this group advocating for senior citizens, uh, and advocating specifically for for the passage of Medicare, um, that mobilization was enormously substantial in making sure that Medicare passed. Once Medicare passed, uh, it's very clear from subsequent healthcare fights that it becomes actually much more. There's much there's there is significantly less mobilization uh, of, in particular, that group of people. And I think also really importantly, a a constituency that, again, I don't think this can be emphasized enough, a constituency that's pretty universally seen as being deserving of generous benefits. Right. right? I think that's also very clear, you know, to remember and consider the fact that 10,000 letters from elders or, um, you know, seniors, what impact that has on a politician relative to, let's say, 10,000 letters from single mothers living in an urban area or something, right? Like, you know, there is the important factor of the idea of fighting for healthcare for the elders or like for the aged, as they would say back then, was this kind of noble pursuit, which had typically been, you know, a role that the community always engages in. And this was sort of the state showing that it was taking responsibility for supporting, you know, communities and families across America. So what happens when that constituency is in effect bought off by having their needs marginally met? And then I think in decades later, you know, as you point out, Artie, then having their, um, you know, their needs and their programs challenge will reinvigorate that base, but that it's actually, you know, proven to be difficult to get that base to engage in fights for broader, more solidaristic healthcare for everyone after the passage of Medicare. You know, Medicare was the largest expansion of the welfare state in history. And when this like astonishing three layer cake, which again, doesn't really meet everyone's needs nearly at all and has a lot of problems for the community that was sort of bought off, right? It's not perfect. But that's just the beginning of where the policy goes wrong. Like the layer cake itself is not necessarily the entire problem. And the fast implementation is not the problem either. Right. That's important to to be clear about, because, you know, what what happens also is that, you know, Medicare is uh, designed to stave off the inevitable, quote unquote, inevitable national health insurance. Right. And I, I think this is the really kind of funny thing is that some of the people that were instrumental in like passing Medicare by, you know, the late 1960s, they're like, well, you know, the expansion uh, of this program to cover the whole population, that's just like inevitable. That's obviously going to happen because these, these gaps sort of remain. But I think the really interesting thing is that I think the concept that like you see in that is that you would have this alternative American model where everyone would most people would sort of have some sort of coverage from some source, but it wouldn't be through this the sort of classic European 
uh, model. But what Medicare does is it further fragments any sort of coalition for main, even right. maintaining that sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, universalism by other means or like whatever, seg- some segmented approach to getting uh, everybody uh, covered. It, it First of all, it completely takes one key element uh, or key kind of constituency out of the mix. There's already divisions within labor that by the 1970s, when any of the sort of you know, Nixon or Kennedy national health insurance proposals are, are going through. Labor is internally divided. You have UAW and, and Walter Ruther versus AFL-CIO and, and George Meany um, sort of divided on that question. Um, and then you have all of these circumstances that change, right? Uh, medical inflation ticks up. You begin to see the emergence of all of these, like the the, the war surplus uh, evaporates, all of the sort of like fiscal policy elements that might have made it easier for kind of like welfare state liberals to, uh, uh, you know, advance some of these proposals disappear. Um, and you have no co- really coherent political, cons- broad based political constituency that exists sort of at all levels of government to do any of the work and saying, hey, wait a minute, this whole arrangement that we thought we were creating in the 1960s. Oh, wait a minute. Suddenly insurers are uh, or employers are like dumping people from insurance. Uh, we have ERISA and like they're you know creating these like self-insured plans and these risk pools are getting getting out of whack. You have nothing there to deal with that at all. So it's like it's like they created this false floor uh, the, the people who were involved in creating Medicare like created this like false floor uh, over people in the, in the late 1960s and when that floor like fell out there was nothing there to, to support it yeah I think also it's I think it's important that you bring up like the that sort of fiscal element too because I think one of the it's clear that um, you know as much as you can say for instance like oh medical inflation ticked up etc as almost a I, I think often actually that's said almost as a throwaway but it's interesting how some of the consequences of the structure of medicare actually very clearly play in i think actually to the to the fact that um healthcare becomes so expensive in such a like growth industry basically mm-hmm. within the united states because one thing that's difficult to remember i think from a contemporary uh perspective is that you know the 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 health industries did not used to be this outrageously profitable right Right. i guess my 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 fundamental point and then i have a couple things to back this up is that in making the decision to socialize the financing of uh only a specific pool of people and then also only a specific pool of things uh like you know as as we mentioned like uh, hospital coverage in, in certain senses and right. then like other stuff, you know, uh, this is long before, um, any form of, uh, like this, this long, long before like prescription drug coverage is added to Medicare and stuff, which isn't until like the fucking Bush era. But, <laughs> um, but so for example, in, in socializing certain things, but also leaving essentially for the most part, leaving, uh, the, the sort of like, management of the of of those things up to like all of these private interests you create this what just appears at least to have been received by the various industries as like a spigot of public money um that they can 
they can like use for whatever their purpose is basically um you have for example in the in the late 60s um investment analysts start rating hospitals uh and hospital supplies as good investments because they're seen as recession proof because no matter right. what because there had been problems during the great depression this is actually one of the reasons that one of the reasons private insurance becomes a thing in the first place is because actually during the uh great depression private insurance really takes off uh specifically because you have like actually hospital groups create um blue cross in order to make it so that uh you could have like you know people who are profoundly uh out of work to uh be able to like you know like there's an insurance uh like a private insurance system basically springs up to be for people to be able to actually like afford quote unquote to go uh to go to the hospital and for like like catastrophic care right exactly and so and um and so you know there there was an immediate recent history example of you know during something like a depression that you know also like hospitals were not something that were quote-unquote recession proof well this is this you know changes that so it becomes you know it becomes a vehicle for it becomes possible to view it as more of a vehicle for investment you have similarly um similarly for the medical profession the ama um you know clearly starts to recognize uh, the the value basically that can come out of um, treating Medicare patients. You have I'm just going to read a couple. There are two specific quotes from doctors in the period <laughs> that I think are really telling. Here's one: Dr. Brendan Mylands um, quote: "I do not represent the ultra conservative nitwit branch of the American Medical Association. However, in all fairness, one must point out that most physicians, even most uh, even the most grasping." have treated some patients for nothing or for a nominal sum. However, now that the government has assumed financial responsibility for the medical care of these patients, it is hardly fair to ask physicians to donate their services to the government. Another, quote, no healthcare program has ever strained the ethics of the medical profession as Medicare is doing. Okay. The temptation to chisel is enormous. I'll admit that I try to take as much Medicare money from Uncle Sam as I possibly can. From what I've seen and heard, a lot of other doctors are doing the same. Before Medicare, I individualized the fee on every case, which is not actually true, uh, historically speaking. Unless maybe this guy, but he would have been going against industry practices at the time, actually. But that's a story for another time. Uh, continuing the quote, those days are gone forever. Now with Medicare patients, we doctors just charge our usual fee for everything. And I say this not to suggest that like, oh, you know, individual doctors did all this like cronyistic shit or whatever and stole a bunch of tax money, um, which I think it could be easily misinterpreted as. I say this to say that like, because the decision was made specifically, okay, the government isn't going to, you know, we're not going to do socialized medicine. We're not going to do like we're we're not going to like fucking liberate health from capitalism. We're not going to really fundamentally change this part of the political economy, right? Mm-hmm. We're instead going to say like okay, we're going to become the guaranteed payer for this and this and this. It creates this um it creates like a a cushion basically like a total artificial artificial cushion it's like a floor of guaranteed income for hospitals in particular you know i guess another way i would i would put it is that one way of evaluating i think the way that we typically evaluate policy now is like how does it do the thing that it purports to like want to do like does it you know uh, of the people it's meant to serve how many people does it serve and how efficiently does it serve them blah 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 the I think far more important lesson here 
is that in addition to all of those functional effects of legislation, all legislation has political effects. The the yeah. main political effect that most people will identify from Medicare is something like, well, it creates this very uh, special seeming constituency that, you know, mobilizes when people try to cut it and is like seen as as very deserving and worthy, et cetera, positive policy feedback, so to speak. But I think that the equally, if not more important story is the way that both the creation of the plinth of an employer-sponsored system in the 40s and the further subdivision of any constituency for nationalizing healthcare through med- uh, like by Medicare in, in 65 those yeah. things together create their own i think very powerful feedback effects one in disorganizing um the push for uh not not just i want to emphasize not just the push for like national health insurance such as it was like because in a way you could say that was sort of dying a slow death uh, on the vine by the 1960s, but also pushing for any number of other things um, that might have made that system that they did create somewhat more tolerable, right? It it it, it takes away any political energy uh, from that. And I think this is the, the, you know, the reason why any number of things that, you know, come forward uh, that are not... Um, really reconstructive of, of new interests uh, yeah. and, you know, a, a powerful mass uh, organization of, of constituents who benefit from the same program. The reason to cast a skeptical eye on that is we can see what happens when those consti- when constituencies are disorganized. It becomes very difficult to demand anything. You can always be played off. You can always be placated. Uh, because you hire professionals to run your programs and those professionals' reputations are built not on really whether or not they secure good things for you in the long run, but whether or not they're like making achievements they can put on their CV this year. Um, So like there are all number of reasons uh, to cast this. I think this history teaches us to cast a little skeptical eye on when things coming through the pipeline look good and Simultaneously, I think the history, uh, like the the positive thing, I think that we can learn from like the organization, because even like winning Medicare was difficult. Let's let's not undersell that. Oh yeah, right. Sure. Um, the um, just the sheer volume. I mean, there's no there's no count in 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 like Quadagno's book of like the number of moments of contact. Uh, that pe- that the average person would have had with positive arguments about. Uh, national health insurance uh, or, or, or Medicare even. There's no, right. there's no count of that. Um, but it, it's so interesting to me. It's just like every fucking thing that the AMA would come out with, there would be through the physicians, com- uh, physicians committee or like the senior citizens committee or whatever, like an answer and not just an answer that was like, yes, and we're right. And like, here's why we're like technically right. But it's like, yes, and we're right. And these people who are saying this, who like seem to have any sort of like sense of like credibility or like, like professionalism, they're monsters. Like they are bad people. And like, this is like the going for the jugular is I think really important. Like the, and the, yeah. like the people who are supporting this, the current arrangement, they deserve no respect. They deserve no like they and they have to be identified as enemies, just as the people in this story about the emergence of Medicare identified them as enemies because they were. Oh, yeah. 
Right. And I mean, I think, you know, what it, what it really like teaches me more than anything else is not like that uh, change is possible or we need to like make a thousand phone calls, but just really just what are the real risks of accepting these um, compromises that are born out of lawmakers taking the same advice over and over and over again, which ultimately boils down to prioritizing public health equally to prioritizing profit. And that's a balance that just cannot be reconciled. And it's, you know, uh, the sort of practice of reform to stave off like sure and sudden failure that that as a social process has been, I think, one of the most demobilizing political forces in the United States throughout the 20th century. And we are dealing with the repercussions of that. And it's important to sort of see the reality of what went on instead of accepting the assumption that private insurance is, you know, the law of the land for a reason. Right. Because it absolutely is the law of the land for a reason, but not in the sort of affirmative sense that it's like some sort of, you know, God given natural right that Americans will have like free market health care. And, and it's also not the law of the land because it, there's a couple of things. It's not the law of the land because most people want it that way. They don't. Uh, and it's also not the law of the land. So like that's like the cultural argument about American, like small government, like classical mm. liberalism that, that you know, so, somebody gets paid like. $90,000 a year to make uh, every year like, you know, at Claremont College. Um, uh. But like, uh, and it's also not the case that it's just the way it is because of the, n- these nefarious little like lobbies. It's also the case because of the way that, you know, poten- the organizational potential for actually doing something transformative is bled off that's the like you we could talk about the ama and and co, co, whatever coalition for america's healthcare future whatever the hell they're called uh we could talk about them all day but the story that we like is really important here is how is that like coalitional energy like in favor of reform bled off hived off and otherwise defanged uh, over time that that's like the whole history of of the latter half of the 20th century in healthcare politics yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Which um I think this chapter of which is coming to an end. <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. Um maybe. <laughs> may- we maybe. can uh, question mark. For teachers, pause the tape here. <laughs> A series of discussion questions has been provided to you. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't though, sorry. Oh, <laughs> no, it hasn't. The uh uh yeah, also um tell us if you enjoy these obviously we uh we've enjoyed uh i think the the one that i referenced before the death panel history of socialized medicine um we really enjoyed that this one as i have mentioned also like you know draw, draws in large part from a history from uh the same individual but uh jill quadagno but um you know summer's long and horrible um and the news cycle can and, sometimes uh, be really not interesting to talk about and if you yeah and if so if you find um some of these histories of specific uh like very relevant moments in the the development or rather non-development the constant deferral rather of a national (laughs) health insurance program uh and the many pratfalls of uh of policymakers interesting um please let us know yeah you know uh where our dms are open we're at death panel underscore as i mentioned at the top 
But um, patrons, as always, we really appreciate your support. Thank you for uh, helping us do the show. We're going to catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
crime shot up immediately afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, that's more scientifically sound than whatever the fuck that was. I would. Yeah, you could. You could probably. I mean, it's equally. You could, I'm sure, equally make uh, a logical correlation between the potato skins and uh, and the crime waves. Right. I don't know. I mean, the I have, that I, have I have a potato skin theory of the political economy that I've been working <laughs> on for years. So just saying, hey, look, Wait I mean, for it, <laughs> it appears to me, at least that the political economy takes phrenology of all kinds. So, you know, why not introduce <laughs> a potato? <laughs> why, don't, why not introduce a potato skin model? You know, why not? <laughs> Equally viable. Don't don't dare me. I might do this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Freakonomics. 